Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. I'm Andy Boel, and today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Nicholas Vending Refn's Pusher. Say that again five times fast. Nicholas Vindingreffen, Nicholas Vindingreffen, Nicholas Vindingreffen. Almost, okay, yeah, it gets, gets a little fluid at the ending there. But I'm proud of you for trying. I mean, we, we've come a long way since calling it Studio Ghibli. <laughs> what is it really? Ghibli? It's Ghibli. It's Ghibli, and <laughs> we didn't know that, okay. but, you know. Bless our sweet little hearts. That was back in episode one. I know. <laughs> when our sound quality was terrible. I'd like to think our content was just as good, though. <laughs> sure, Andy. Sure. You know what uh, was a lot better, at least based off of the conversations you and I have had off mic, was the movie we watched in episode one. Yeah. <laughs> this, um... It got better. It got better. The first 30 minutes of this movie are terrible. I want to gently push back against that. I I don't think this is a good movie. I'll, I'll get that out of the way. Or at least like, like this is lower third of, of the cult fiction canon. I don't know if I will watch this film again, but I wasn't mad at it. I didn't think it was bad. Andy, the first 30 minutes were so boring, I paused it and took a nap. You told me that. And then came back to it later. <laughs> you told me that, and I was like, oh, shit, that's not even what I thought the most boring part of the movie was. <laughs> what did you think the most boring part of the movie was? There's so... Okay, we're going to get into the, in case you missed it, in a moment. But the most boring part of the movie, I thought, was there's a moment where Frank and Vic have, like kind of sort of had a night on the town and i remember they're they're walking down the street together and there's a moment i really like shortly after that but i was just sitting here being like i think i just spaced out the last five minutes and i know i didn't miss anything and i hmm i i want to give this movie a lot of credit but this this is a bit dull yeah, and I I think it also doesn't help that the the main character of Frank and his kind of girlfriend, not really established, they have zero chemistry at all. So when they're out together, I'm not like, "Oh, yes, this couple that's together and they're spicy and they're interesting and she's disappointed, but she loves him." I was like, "Why?" There was no chemistry. There wasn't any connection. So I I had a really hard time believing in anything they established. Sure. And so just just real quick, in, in case you skipped it, Pusher is the tale of Frank, a low-level Danish drug dealer, say that five times fast, 
Who? Low-level Danish drug dealer, low-level Danish drug dealer, low-level Danish drug dealer, low-level Danish drug dealer, low-level Danish drug dealer. Oh, yeah, okay, it is harder than thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a low-level Danish drug dealer who is busted in the middle of a deal gone bad. Frank then goes to desperate measures to make money to pay back his supplier, shaking up every connection that owes him and burning every last bridge in his personal life only to still come up short by the movie's end. And so to go back to addressing your point, like none of the characters in this movie are good or even especially sympathetic people. Uh uh uh. Frank's mom. Well, sure. Yes. Frank's Frank's a, poor mother. Frank's poor mom is a good, sweet, and pure human who gives her son like six thousand dollars because he needs it, and she's like, "I have six thousand dollars. Would that help?" And he just takes it, leaves, and doesn't say thanks. I'm like, that woman just gave you probably her life savings. Yeah, yeah. No, like, so okay. I'll 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 clarify that to our main characters. Yes, um, I'm sorry. You know, Frank, his his woman of indeterminate relationship Vic the guy he owes Milo and his friend Tunney like none of them are particularly engaging or very sympathetic like the the one my heart bleeds the most for is Vic who is in mm-hmm. this like trapped space where she's she she's actually a high end prostitute. They make a point of that by you know they call she's her a champagne girl. Exactly, she's not a, a common like back alley hooker, um, but she's still like in this weird trapped space where you know the her, all of her relationships are either Johns or there's the one guy who is the closest thing she has to a boyfriend. But even then, he he goes to great lengths to appear apathetic to her. He he talks to his friends about how he can't bring himself to like sleep or do anything with her because she's a hooker. But she gives a great blowjob. But she gives a great blowjob, which I mean, okay. But like <laughs> Frank, Frank, and to a lesser but equal extent. Honey, are bad people. They're bad, low-class, unromanticized people. What, what were you going to say? I was going to say, um, I was more grossed out by Tunny, actually. It's Mads, it's Mads Mikkelsen, so like I'm here for his face, his beautiful, <laughs> beautiful, weird face. But just the stuff that comes out of his mouth, I'm like, oh, you're so repulsive to me. Right. I, th- I thought the same thing. Cause yeah, Tunney's the one who says some, some horribly racist shit. He is a deplorable, like backwards human being. And on top of it all, you could just tell from the performance, like he's not a smart enough person to even question his ideals or his way of life for a second. <laughs> he is, you know what? Yep. Yeah, if we're refer- if we're making like the clerk's metaphor, he is the J to Frank Silent Bob. Yes. Oh, that is a great comparable. Absolutely. Thank you. Why? Thank you. <laughs> 
and, and that leads into the overarching thing. This remove this movie reminded both of us the hell out of Clerks. In the weirdest way, it's Clerks with drugs. It's or it's more drugs. If Kevin Smith wrote a love letter to Pulp Fiction, but like Ooh. still had no money and the indie sensibilities with which he made clerks and happened to be living in Denmark, you would get, (laughs) then, then you get pusher. That's interesting. I like that. I'm glad that makes me think more fondly of this trash movie. (laughs) Well, you know, I've come to really, uh, enjoy being able to make you like movies you don't like a little bit more (laughs) you've enjoyed corrupting the pure baby angel of my mind that didn't even know what that dope came in different colors let alone which one dope is (laughs) yeah the second part of that is the cutest purest most sweetie baby angel part of that sentence okay hold on i'm gonna open an incognito tab Oh yeah, don't don't want the NSA to see what you're looking up. What is dope? Dope. Definition of dope by Merriam-Webster. Sorry, we're doing this on our film podcast. Dope, a stupid person. (laughs) Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Um, Dope, too, informal, an illicit drug such as heroin or cocaine. Uh... That was the funniest thing reading that is like, like dope could be just about any drug you want to you want to desi- assign it to the movie is all about heroin or at least you know the, oh, the drug in the movie which i mean I'll, I'll go ahead and say i also didn't know that there was brown heroin and white heroin oh that's so i go on my stomach oh wait a minute my stomach is a little sort of Oh, man. I mean, presu- presumably, um, you know, if this movie had been in English, maybe you would have caught that it was heroin. Um, not to say that I would have watched a dub if it was available, because especially for live action movies, I prefer when they're foreign to watch them in the native in the native language and read subtitles. But this this ticked me off because there was more than one moment where people are talking really quickly, really fast. And it's almost like the subtitle guy just gave up. Oh no. (laughs) For like, for like 20 second chunks, like multiple sentences. There's, there's a moment when Milo is torturing Frank that he's like, you know, shouting shit and contextual clues. I get that. It's probably not great, but I really, I was sitting here wanting to know, everything that was being said and was being presented. So maybe, you know, also they talk about heroin and all the bits that it's not subtitled. Who knows? Sure. Okay. I appreciate that you're giving me the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, listen, you are a honey, sweetie, baby angel, and it's perfectly okay that you don't know what drugs are what. (laughs) (laughs) I just know I'm not supposed to do them. Exactly. (laughs) There was a moment in this movie where um, uh, Vic is shooting up on the toilet and she's injecting. Oh, yeah. Jesus. And I was like, 
this is my thing in movies that is one of the few things that I will just be like, nope, I cannot, like, hands over eyes, I cannot watch this at all. Um, like, not even peeking through fingers or peeking over a pillow, like, anytime someone shoots up in a movie, I can't. Sure. Do you have an equivalent? Um, I don't know if I have one in regards to drug use. I certainly, I certainly don't enjoy watching an injection scene. I think I've seen like the Saw series too many times to have any regular thing like skis me out. I, I will say like they're actually, actually, you know what thinking about it? IV tubes. IV tubes and especially like the violent removal thereof. Oh, when they like yank something out of their arm. Yeah. Like this is going way off the rails, but specifically there's a moment in the human centipede, (laughs) which comparatively. Uh, Yes. American classic human centipede. (laughs) Comparatively. It's one of the lightest moments in the film. There's a moment where a character like, wakes up in a hospital bed and starts freaking the hell out and rips out an IV and not just in the way we're like, Oh, they kind of pluck it out. Like, no, she like jumps out of bed and it just rips out of her arm and like (gasps) blood splatters the camera. And, and that has stuck with me as the most, Oh my God. Um, medical procedure thing. But going back to Pusher, the thing that I caught myself like really looking at more um, wasn't the injection, but it was the moment where Frank is snorting cocaine. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it is. It looked so much more real. Like the The cocaine did the, the, the action of him snorting it. Like I'm, I'm thinking to other movies. I'm thinking to like Lord of War or Scarface. I'm thinking to bigger Hollywood pictures. And there's always just something about the way you see like somebody, you know, blow a rail in those movies that didn't look as viscerally real. When it, it's early in the film, Frank does a line off of Vic's coffee table and. I don't know. There was maybe it's the fact that it's a lower budget camera and it, it looks more real or, or I don't know what, but I was just sitting there being like, damn, that is the most realistic cocaine cocaine snort I've ever seen, which is not my Oscar. <laughs> not your Oscar. What else did you enjoy camera work wise about this movie? So I, I endlessly appreciate the camera work in this movie. And it's not that it's not that any of it is particularly stunning on its own, but it's, it, it has everything to do. And and this is why like this movie raises, it raises itself in my mind a bit, understanding the behind the scenes aspect and like visualizing the crew as this movie is getting shot, none of this was in set. Like these were real people's apartments. These were real venues. None of this was fake. This was Nicholas Findingreffen and his film crew wandering the streets of Copenhagen with, you know, a shoulder mounted camera and then crawling into people's apartments. And as such, interesting. yeah, as such, everything looks tiny and claustrophobic and like, crappy and and just real and Mm. that alone i sit there i I sit here and applaud and i understand why people 
really liked this film when it came out. It it won um, a film fest award for for whatever international film festival it was submitted for, and that's kind of what put uh, Nicholas Vindingreffen and to a lesser extent Mads Mikkelsen like on a more international stage. I love that because we were talking earlier today about like the difficulty of one shots and moving around a room. So I'm picturing these cameramen like trying to all pack into this tiny uh, Danish apartment and trying to get the right shot that they need, despite the fact that it is an actual flat and everything's smaller in Europe because there's more people shoved into a smaller space. No, that's a great point too. I mean, just like, from a permitting perspective, like, you know, they, there, there's the bit where Frank is trying to outrun the cops and, and that I actually really did appreciate that shot of, you know, Frank just full on sprinting through a park and then jumping in the lake and you see, you know, the camera stays ahead of him the whole time. It obviously had to be on a cart or something, but just thinking about, Thinking about these guys wandering around Copenhagen and this was the first film they made. This was not a, I mean, this was indie, but it wasn't super indie, but like this isn't like 28 days later where capital D director Danny Boyle can get the city of London to close down, you know, the bridge and the turnabout for five hours in the morning. This is, Hey, we're a bunch of nobodies making our first movie. I'm 26 by the way. Uh, and let's just go out with this camera. <laughs> by the way, when you told me he was 26, I had, do you ever have those moments where you find out how, how old someone is and you're like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> um, I mean, yes, because I had one as well. <laughs> So you're like, he's 26. And I'm like, cool, 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 cool. He made a movie. I have a film podcast. (laughs) Right, exactly. I don't know how old (laughs) Kevin Smith was. I figure. um, Oh, he was a youth baby. Yeah. I mean, there's just something about like, you know what, for for all of its flaws, for for what could possibly be some pacing issues for a script that is admittedly a derivative love letter to Pulp Fiction, like shit, dude, you're the, the dude made a movie, a full on movie. This was supposed to be a 10 minute film short. And he went, mm, no, let's make it a trilogy. The dude made a movie at 26. And that alone raises the bar for me a, a bit. Doesn't make me so- enjoy the movie anymore, but <laughs> Well, I'm happy you brought up it being a trilogy because when I was searching for it on Tubi TV, which is where I watched it, um, I saw that it was a trilogy and I was like, Andy, we said we weren't going to do any trilogies. Um, So I'd love you to talk about why this movie is a trilogy. (laughs) So uh, there there are two things. and, And one of them is the thing I told you first, which I'm completely wrong about. I was under the impression that he had just made all three of these movies at the exact same time and pushers one, two and three all came out in 1996. And I spent about a day just reeling with that in my head and just like, 
oh my god from an avant-garde perspective alone like you're telling me you made all three of these okay yeah this 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 is like if nothing else this is high art turns out that's not the case but the reality of the story is actually equally fascinating in my mind um okay so pusher was nicholas fitting reference first film it was sure. successful enough that it, you know, it won some international film awards and it got him some money and he turned around and made a movie I've never heard of called fear X, which uh, was an American release and stars John Totoro. Um, and apparently fear X is such a piece of garbage that it bankrupted the studio that vending Refn had financed with this money from his previous movie. So it totally like he shot himself in the kneecap with, with uh, career wise with this. And so he turned around and he thought, well, shit, people really liked pusher. Let me make two more. And so pushers <laughs> pushers two and three were filmed at the same time. Interesting. And created enough buzz that you know basically um vending refin got a second chance and was able to go on and make bronson and drive and the movies that like people really have come to admire him for as a director and you know, I'd, I'd heard of these movies before, but I certainly hadn't heard of them before Drive came out. I'm sitting here wondering who liked these movies so much. And there is a pretty clear cut answer. People in the UK. Hmm. I say this because not only did this get a remake in 2005 with an all British cast but the entire pusher trilogy got a second remake in Hindi. What? I, I was combing around IMDb. This isn't like listed in the trivia or the, as mentioned though, it certainly should be because it is absolutely fascinating. Like pusher got remade once and it, it actually has um, the same guy who plays Milo in both movies and okay, whatever. But like it was so beloved because the weird thing is both of these remakes were made in Britain, but like they made the first one and they made it for English speaking audiences. And that one sure. at least looks like it has the higher production value, but it, a, you know, something doesn't translate remakes hardly ever work as well, but the pusher. Yeah. Hold on. Let me, let me just pull this up real quick just to actually speak for, for whatever reason. Also, again, in the UK, they make a completely separate remake from the other one. It's not that they, you know, they put in the language, dub and use the same actors. No, this movie has been shot three times, one of which with an all Hindi cast and that version in the like Indian Hindi sub community of the UK was a monster hit and they were able to remake the entire trilogy. And that is so crazy to me because I've never heard of that. What? 
That's so cool. That would be like if they remade the girl with the dragon tattoo and we got um, the version with Daniel Craig, which did okay. And then we never got the other two sequels. And then you also found out that like there was a girl with the dragon tattoo Telemundo like Spanish series of the entire trilogy. It's just, it's so bizarre and fascinating. And so clearly like people were here for, for these stories. Well, this is a total side tangent, but with our audience of film buffs, I think they'll forgive me, but you know, there's like a, um, Scandinavian girl with the dragon tattoo release, right? Right. Cause that's the original one. Okay. That was the one that Alex and I saw at um, Enzian. And so when the American version came out, I was like, no, I am not going to go see that. I saw the Scandinavian <laughs> release. I'm not going to put myself through that again. Thank uh, you very much. David Finchner's Girl with Dragon Tattoo is like the trilogy that if I were independently wealthy, I would have forced to get made. I loved that movie so much. Horrible and awful things. Hard fucking watch. Absolutely. But, you know. Babby me was not prepared. Oh, of course. How could you be? Oh, man. So would you say for Pusher, for the version we watched, the original Danish version, it was an overall competently done, boring movie punctuated by moments of extreme violence. Correct. There is a bar fight that I was okay with, and then a baseball bat got involved, and that was awful. Yeah, I'm surprised Tunney is in the sequel, because it looks like he got beaten to death. Yes, when I read, okay, what's the second and third movie about, I was like, how is this bitch still alive? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so, and then Frank is just walking out with blood on his face all over, like, oh, no problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I characterized the movie in, in that specific way because I'm thinking about the other movies uh, by Nicholas Vindingreffen I've seen. I'm thinking about Drive. I'm thinking about Valhalla Rising, which is on the list. Um and I think there's a general theme where it is so slow burning, and then it's like all of a sudden the candle explodes by how insanely violent it gets out of nowhere. And like it or love it, all, all I'm pointing out is the, the guy has a directorial style and at least in every movie of his I've ever seen, he, he keeps to it pretty well. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is I have more naps in store for myself. <laughs> I I really hope you like Valhalla Rising. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen is a Viking. But oh, I'm listening. Mads Mikkelsen is a Viking, and there are also like entire twenty minute segments where there is no dialogue. <laughs> so Andrew Richard, come on. <laughs> what do I have to do? I mean, 
we could get Mo or Alex on that. <laughs> we could put in a, a, a vending refin clause where you tag out. <laughs> where I tap out and just go, nope, sorry, friends. This is... No, I will... I agreed to this podcast for Studio Ghibli and insert other grisly movie studio here. I'm trying to make a better or worse comparison and it's not working. I mean, we're a, we're a cult movie show. I think there's a whole lot more worse than better. But I mean, you know, we got we we got like what we do in the shadows and who framed Roger Rabbit and the Wiz and Anaconda. Jesus Christ. <laughs> all right. All right. So what else about this movie? Um, going back to my original point about them not being good people. Like I, I don't necessarily think it makes for the best entertainment, but I'll give it to Vending Refn and Kim Bodnia and Mads Mikkelsen for their performances. Like Tunny and Frank are low level scumbags. They never really come across as anything else. They're never at all sympathetic. And there's at least something to the commitment of that. Like nobody in this movie is high class. The person with the most power is Milo. And we see both his place of business and his home, or, you know, you assume it's his home and they're both kind of dumps. Yeah. It's kind of dingy. Yeah. So I, I like that this was the opposite of Scarface where like, by the end he is the kingpin or there's so many gangster movies that, you know, add some intrigue by having it be the low level boot who rises up and becomes the master of everything. By the end of it, Frank, the the point of this movie is Frank never rises up. Yeah. He arguably didn't do anything wrong except be a drug dealer which is, you know, arguably the biggest mistake of all for him at least, but he never like, he never really betrays anybody. He never, he never makes a mistake. It's just happenstance that that one deal, the cops bust him. And even then he's smart enough to throw the heroin in the lake. And I appreciated the back half of this movie for, that tragic component of it where Frank's world just crumbles around him. You know, I, the, the one thing I, I will say he probably does wrong is when he goes and beats down Tunney because we never have anything but the police's word for it that Tunney betrayed him. Um, yeah. But just watching this guy shake down everybody he can and try to wheel and deal and, you know, betray his family, go to his mom and take all the money she's got without even so much as a thank you. Just circle the drain and finally never, never come up for it. Never, never have that, that magic moment. He thinks he does. And then finally, climactically, you know, Vic is the one who betrays him. Good honor. Yeah. 
I appreciated well, that. He's not very good at his job. No. Is like the main takeaway that I came back with. Because there was multiple people that he went to and he was like, hey, you owe me. Hey, you owe me. Hey, you owe me. And I kept thinking, honey, baby, sweetie, if you had collected from these people, you wouldn't be in this place. If you were good at collecting on your debts, if you were good at up t- upkeeping your relationships, if you were good at being careful, if you were good at money management, like there are multiple times huh, where I'm aware that he has this big debt and then he buys a thing and I'm like, you're trying to pay back a debt. Why would you spend money right now? Like the money manager in me was like, no, I don't like this. <laughs> right, right. It's... But he- He's so bad at his job that it makes it, it makes it tragic. Like, oh, you are never going to get out of this. It gives us such a interesting look at the drug economy, especially on that lower end. Because like, Mm. you know, Milo seems to do this. Milo lets Frank walk around with a five grand debt. And, you know, there's the the other woman in the movie, the blonde chick who is not Vic and whose name I don't remember. She's wheeling and dealing. That is Rita. Okay, yes. Um, you know, she's wheeling and dealing the same way. And it is just such a, like, luck of the draw, your straw came up short thing that he... he has this misfortune the one moment where he can't, where then it becomes unacceptable for Milo to let it slide any longer. And you lose the facade of, oh, I'm just a quirky business owner who who makes shitty cakes and like uh, moves refrigerators. And it's like, okay, no, now I'm the mob boss. I'm going to have my buddy rip out your kneecaps. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you should bring up um the hustle because i noticed so much of this movie is the women doing the hustling Mm -hmm. so rita sells a lot of frank's drugs for him and that's a pivotal point because she doesn't sell for him and she leaves a lot of his drugs in amsterdam and gives him back um baking powder right right and then also um vic keeps keeps his stash, keeps Frank's stash at her apartment and says in the very beginning of the movie, oh, you know, if you're going to keep your drugs here, it's going to cost you more. And I, it's like kind of implied that she's angling for like, please actually fuck me. Um, <laughs> instead of just letting me blow you, like, please, let's actually have sex. Um, but like all the women do the care and keeping of the thing that actually makes money and Frank is just pushing and pushing and pushing. And so watching him blow through his relationships and watching him fail to collect and watching him bother his mother, I was like, this, this part from a critique standpoint bothers me. Not that I thought great, uh, Frank was going to be like the pantheon of wonderful men. (laughs) <laughs> right. No, I I didn't really keen in on that, but I I actually if it was intentional, which man, I I have no idea if it was or not, but it certainly does read as 
the women in the movie at least are the real players and in the case of frank's mother are like the good people like the worst thing that happens is vic betrays him but by that point in the movie like it is entirely justifiable and i don't know that she would have if he hadn't said two seconds later what the fuck would i do in spain like she had this idea of them running away together him taking her kind of away from her life and them starting together anew which is a little i mean it's a little stereotypey but whatever i'm willing to let it slide and then he crashes that dream and that's when she's like oh no i'm going to take this money it's such a fascinating little character bit for me from frank because even practically i was sitting there wondering why like wednesday Like, after he gets out of jail, he goes and talks to Milo. He explains the situation. And Milo's like, okay, you have a day. Get me my money. Like, at that point, to not grab Vic and just start driving blew my mind. That 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 never even became an option to him until finally... Like, I I think it was even her idea to, like, go to Spain. And he's just kind of aloof and on a whim you know going with that for as long as he thinks he's screwed and then the second he thinks he's going to be okay and he makes that final deal and he does get the money for him to immediately turn around and just be like no it's not on the table i live in copenhagen i'm a low-level drug dealer this is just what i do and who i am and that unchangeability is maybe the most pathetic thing about him. Well, and it's so, okay, so there's two points there. One, it's so ironic that he thinks he's saved because we have a, like, briefest of brief glimpse into what's happening at Milo's apartment, and he's already coating his apartment in garbage bags. Right. Because he's absolutely not gonna be okay with this. So there is that moment of, like, either way, your girlfriend stole your money, your girlfriend didn't steal your money, you're still fucked. At that point, yeah, he, he'd shot Radovan. Or, uh, no, he, he, he shot the other guy in the, in the leg. And, yeah, at that point, he'd already physically retaliated. So at that point, it's like, yeah, dude, take your chances in Spain. Like, it's, like leave. at least you can probably get away from Milo. And so my second point is, maybe this is just me, but did you think, based on the premise of a drug deal goes bad and a drug dealer desperately tries everything he can to try and pay back the debt, like, part of me was thinking, okay, he's going to pull a bank job, which is mentioned. He's going to, like, pimp out his girlfriend for tons and tons of money, which is set up to be a premise, like... She mentions multiple times, you took me to this party and this person hit on me for this amount of money or this person thinks this, I'm not that. And I'm like, why not just, yes, it's a terrible thing to do, but clearly you're a terrible person. Why are you not taking advantage of that for money? And I don't think he's smart enough, which I say as a compliment to the writing 
for our protagonist to be, you know, the wheels are moving in his head the entire time, but he's so one track mind of this is the way I get money. This is what I do. I don't pimp out my girlfriend. I don't rob a bank. I sell somebody some drugs and they give me money for it. The the mm. the most like he branches out is when he gets a gun. But that's more out yeah. of desperation than ingenuity on his part. Speaking of the amount of money he owes, I did some math. Which you know is like a big deal for me. Sure. Um, but in today's currency, when you when you first of all you have to, you know, translate this to this, like kronars to dollars, and then you have to translate nineteen ninety six money to twenty twenty money. Oh, you did adjust for inflation. Oh, okay. <laughs> of, of course I did. I'm not a dummy. I never thought you were. <laughs> um so when you adjust for inflation when you translate from kronars to dollars it is only $40,834 which don't get me wrong that's like a down payment for a pretty decent home uh or a pretty nice home that's a kid's college tuition for all 4 years that's half of my master's degree I'm not bitter. Um, <laughs> but that's way less than I thought it was. Like, part of me was like, oh, shit. Why is that? Okay. All right. Okay. And maybe maybe that's why Milo gives him so many chances and gives him so much time. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you're right. At the same time, like, you know theatrically we would be more accustomed to it being a hundred grand 500 grand yeah but it all goes back to the low stakes of the movie like i couldn't come up with 40 grand in a week if i had to yeah and uh unless you pull a bank job yeah unless i pulled a bank job or or, don't make that joke. No, don't make the joke. I was not. Don't. I was not gonna make the joke. <laughs> I was sitting there being like, "No, yeah, bank jobs really the only thing I could do. I could maybe rob nope. my place of business." Oh, honey. The fact that it would... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't make that forty grand, and at the end of the day, that's. It's it's just a, a binary, you either have the money or you don't, dog-eat-dog dog world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, $40,000, yeah, that would be very stressful to come up with in a week. And the only way I can think is pulling a bank job. And I wouldn't know how, like, yes, I'm a big, like, um heist movie fan like all of the ocean movies are extremely my shit but that doesn't mean that i actually know how to pull a bank job (laughs) of course yeah and you know you and i aren't even criminals frank is a bona fide criminal and he doesn't know how to put Mm -hmm. how to pull a bank job because he's not that kind of criminal 
Exactly. This uh, this reminded me a little bit more of Down by Law in the sense of that's the other super boring movie we watch. But there's there's it, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a presentation thing. It's mm. it's the idea that we're going to make a movie and make it as unsensationalized as possible and as close to how these events would probably happen in real life as possible. And I'm very on the fence about it. It's very hit or miss. I, I think I lean on wanting the sensationalism and wanting the escapism more than not. But it creates an interesting conversation like we're having right now, if nothing else. Sure. Um, so let's see. I, uh, I I feel like this had to have been an intent. Or I, I feel like this had to have been intentional. The last thing I want to say about Tunney, um, you know, I was so excited for Mads Mikkelsen, um, like more than the director. He is why I was so pumped to see this when we pulled it. You know, Mads Mikkelsen, who is Hannibal on TV, who is Lachie from James Bond, who is a phenomenal villain. He's a classically trained dancer. Like, like before he was acting in movies, he was doing ballet and doing plays. So the moment where he does this crazy spin kick and then has to (laughs) act like he's fucked up his hamstring. I was laughing at that the whole time. Um, And the other thing I was laughing about with Tunney, like he is this gross, insane, like... Yeah, he he is the worst. He's this garbage human, this bag of bad impulses. And the entire time we see him in the movie, he's wearing an American flag T-shirt. Cool, 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 cool. And that was in 96. I see you, Nicholas Vindingreffen, and I I, I see you in 2020. (laughs) Woof. 96 was Clinton. You could argue that we were doing okay-ish then. Yeah. And yet on the world stage. Mm. (laughs) Mm. Um, What did you think of the ending? Okay, I kind of liked the ending. Where we pan to um, Frank's face and he just realizes slowly, I am fucked. There is nothing I can do. There is nothing I can say. I'm just fucked. So. And then we never get any resolution of what happens next. And I liked that hanging in the middle of there. Right. That was very. There are a lot of things in this movie that are very film school. Um, mm-hmm. The days of the week thing the way the characters are introduced in the very beginning and that ending moment and the ambiguity of the moment, but the ending at least I very much liked. And that was like, you get an A plus on your paper film school. Um, For all the reasons you said, like just he's done everything. We've spent 45 minutes watching him break his nails by clawing through the mud, doing everything, everything you know taking money from his mom every last connection he has he went through he had it for a second and then he 
pissed it all away. He messed up. He's done. We get the shot of Milo as a reminder of what's waiting for us. We get the last shot of Vic driving away, escaping this awful movie. And the thing I appreciated and the thing I keyed in on, this movie showed us what happens when you don't have the money and you can't pay with the guy who killed himself by, you know, eating a shotgun barrel. So the only question left at the end of the movie is does Frank kill himself or does he let Milo kill him? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I very much uh, appreciated that. But then there's Pusher 3 where Frank is attempting to be a family man. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's Milo is attempting to be a family man. So never mind. Excuse me. It's all good. No, Frank dead as shit. <laughs> Frank dead as shit. <laughs> um, is this called Andy? Because like For- there's a lot of remakes and a lot of sequels. There are a lot of remakes and I, uh, I, I guess I got to go against my rule here a little bit and say that part of the remakes are why this is so cult because like, like this movie was enough for, if nothing else, the Hindi UK community that they were like, yes, we eat this shit up, make all of them again. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I think this movie is cult because of all the film school nerds who saw Drive and were blown away and were like, oh, my God, I got to see this guy's entire filmography. Um, it's it's mm. cult for all of the indie aspects, all of all of the running around Copenhagen without a film permit shit that we talked about. Um, yeah, sure. The uh, the financials on IMDb are a little hard to figure out it, it cost six million kroner and it had a u.s opening release of fifteen hundred dollars on the one hand i don't know the exchange rate on the other hand like there's no way this was released in american theaters for some reason we don't have the danish like theatrical run numbers so i have no idea how this did um from a financial standpoint i guess it did enough that Nicholas Vending Refn was able to make his own studio afterwards. So that's got to be pretty good. Um, I mean, I imagine if it did as well as you say, and if it was as obsessed on by UK residents, it probably did pretty financially well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, so maybe, maybe this one's on the fence, but I, I, I think I lean on, on it as cult. Why? Because more than anything, maybe, okay, okay, here we go. I bet you that this is not cult internationally, but this is cult in America because of the international component and because of all those film school nerds I mentioned who like were blown away by Ryan Gosling in a scorpion jacket and wanted to embrace the art of the hot new directing auteur. I can see that. Pulled it out of the fire. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say, like, not every movie has to be cold. If, if you you've built up a strong enough argument and I really am kind of on the fence about this, we could nix this one as cult. 
I'd, I'd, well, I'd feel, I don't go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. I'd feel, feel? I'd, I'd feel more justified in watching the other two, which I legitimately plan to do. And usually I don't in these cases. <laughs> well, no, I was just going to say that like, there's that conversation surrounding, is it cult or is it just an international movie? So like, poor Ahemplo, um, I think about a lot of Guillermo del Toro's earlier work, which isn't necessarily cult, just because the director is, you know, not well, at that point wasn't well known in our country. And is now this like big international superstar, but like his really, really, really early work, you could maybe argue it's cult, but it's actually just international. Like in the context of where it's from, it did very, 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 very well. So it's kind of that argument of like, well, are we defining whether or not it's cult based on where we're from or where the movie's from? You know what? Solid ass argument that I've never thought about. Oh my God. Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) You know what else is solid? Uh, Your six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I was going to say Kevin Bacon's abs, but yeah. (laughs) Both. Both is good. Both. Both. We could do both. (laughs) so Kim Bodnia who played Frank was in Serena with Jennifer Lawrence who was in X-Men First Class with Kevin Bacon so I did it oh shit okay Mm -hmm. is Serena I, I I maybe you can't answer this I wonder if Serena is in the half of Jennifer Lawrence's career that is good or the half that isn't I have not seen Serena. There is a clear like post post Hunger Games moment where where J Law's career really hasn't stood up all that well. I don't think. I really want to see Mother, which is a whole other conversation. Mother is a fucking trip. Want to go maybe watch that at some point? Uh. For you, I will sit through Mother again. Anyway. What about your Kevin Bacon? Yes, for my Kevin Bacon, uh, I went a different way. I keened in on Mads Mikkelsen because how could I not? Um, And Mads Mikkelsen was in Doctor Strange with Benjamin Bratt. um, And Benjamin Bratt was in The Woodsman with Kevin Bacon. Well done, friend. (laughs) Speaking of things that are well done here on Cult Fiction, most of our movies have never won an award. They haven't won an Oscar. This one won one, but it certainly did not win an Oscar because an international film award does not an Oscar make. Indeed. Andy, what would you like to give Pusher an Oscar for? Uh, This won't be surprising for people who've listened to the entire episode. I've been alluding to it the whole time. I would like to give pusher the oscar for shittiest protagonist (laughs) frank (laughs) is the most unlikable pathetic repugnant piece of shit that we have had to follow around like more (laughs) than the toxic avenger more than andy warhol's dracula 
did I hate oh this my. guy as the hero of our movie. Oh my. Well, yeah. fair enough. So more of a Razzie, but what was your Oscar? <laughs> my Oscar is also similarly kind of a Razzie. Uh, my Oscar is for the most stressed out I've ever been during the <laughs> Which really says a lot since you took a nap through it. Well, no, it's the back half where he owes money. Right, of um, course. Because I've, I've owed money before. Like, I have student loan debt. I, you know had a credit card debt at one point or another in my life but like the f- like I alluded to earlier in the movie the fact that he owes so much money and he's like buying drugs and buying takeout and doing this and doing that and for all means if you have debt please still feel free to take care of yourself still believe in self-care but like you know, don't be extensive about your spending. I will say real quick, if you have debt and somebody's going to come and take out your kneecaps, maybe focus on it. Yeah, maybe maybe focus on that. Um, but so I was just so stressed out the entire movie because I kept watching him buy things. And I was like, but you owe money. Why are you buying things? Someone's going to come get you. I love that you were so worried about Frank in that moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is like my past broke kid trauma of like, but like you owe money. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Speaking of things that you love, what was your quote for this movie? (laughs) Okay. um, hmm. I know mine. I know yours. Mine, I feel like, is kind of a poignant moment. Yours is not. I'm wondering what will be funnier. I'll I'll go ahead and give mine first. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, there's the scene where um, it's the second scene in the movie and Tunny and Frank are at a restaurant. They're blowing their score that they got from the deal at the beginning of the film. And they're making fun of like the fish in the aquarium and they're having a really great time. And they keep talking about this cognac that Frank is drinking and Tunny like takes a drink and he talks some shit about it. And then he's like, actually, you know what? G- give me another drink. And, and Frank goes, do you like it? And Tunny just goes, no, I'm just dirty on the inside. And that's a, <laughs> It's presented as nonchalantly as that. It's very much a joke. And I think it's actually really funny that it's like, no, yeah, I need the alcohol to clean my insides. Um, <laughs> but also it's it's a nice little tongue-in-cheek like admittance of, no, my character is a horrible human being. I'm dirty on the inside. <laughs> so that's my quote. What's your quote? Um... My quote is also a Tunny, or related to Tunny, being a horrible person. So there's one point in the movie where Tunny and Frank are talking about sex with women. And Tunny is talking about women that he sees on the street and his thoughts about them. And Frank says, you see her and wonder if she's into butt fucking? What's wrong with you? And I'm like, Frank... You also haven't proved yourself to be a good person up to this point. <laughs> Frank, this isn't your chance to white knight. <laughs> <laughs> My lady. 
Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tunny is as garbage a human being as Mads Mikkelsen is not. That is the, the way to classify that. Accurate. Accurate. <sighs> well, thank you, uh, dear listeners, for taking this wild ride on us. We're not quite done yet. We got one thing left to do. Uh, every episode of Cult Fiction, we put our hands in the fate of the Hollywood crypt through the application of a random number generator and a giant ass list of movies I have. Um, you know, speaking to your <laughs> earlier point, there's more than a few foreign films that like I dearly want to get through. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to head and just keep them on the list because it's my podcast too. <laughs> You're the worst. <laughs> so with that in mind, uh, we are going to select between our 308 movies. I added a couple <laughs> since last time. And of course you did. <laughs> what we have is no. um, number 89. And no. well, no, I don't know if this is good or bad. Let me explain. Number 89 is 2015's Tangerine. And here's what I know about Tangerine. It is the story of a transsexual hooker trying to track down her pimp slash boyfriend. And it is shot entirely on iPhone. Oh, interesting. That was, that was the big buzz about this movie when it first came out is that it, it, it you know the whole thing it, it is completely it is the first film ever to be completely shot through a phone camera digitally so interesting beyond well that, you can also <laughs> you can watch tangerine by the way on hulu as well as amazon interesting okay I'm excited. A hooker tears through Tinseltown on Christmas Eve searching for the pimp who broke her heart. This has the capacity to be really amazing and beautiful or mm -hmm. like just as dirty skeezy as Pusher. I, I really think it'll be the first one, but I have no idea. I take hope in the fact that IMDb says more like this. And it's a bunch of movies that I either really like or want to see like the Florida project and takeout and snowbird. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure Florida project was the director's second film. Oh, wonderful. Okay. All right. Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you'd like to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time as we wander the streets of Hollywood trying to find the pimp that broke our collective hearts. <laughs> for Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Hey!